Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest podcast episode, number 981, with author Jennifer Garvey Berger about her new book entitled Unleash Your Complexity Genius, Growing Your Inner Capacity to Lead. This podcast, number 981, is brought to you by Pamela Slim, author of a new book entitled The Whitest Net. Unlock untapped markets and discover your customer right in front of you. If you want to know more about Pamela Smith, her classes, services, and books, please visit her website, www.pamelasmith.com. That's www.p-a-m-e-l-a-s-l-i-m.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my engaging interview with author Jennifer Garvey Berger about her new book entitled Unleash Your Complexity Genius, Growing Your Inner Capacity to Lead. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host, and Jennifer Garvard Berger is on the other end of the line, all the way in France. And we're going to be talking about a book that she has authored. She's authored many. Um, Unleash Your Complexity Genius. Uh, hello, Genius, Growing Your Inner Capacity to Lead. And Carolyn Coughlin was her co-author on this as well. I want to make sure that she gets a shout out from us as well. Um, good evening to you, I'll say, because for you it is. And here it's bright in the morning. How are you doing, Jennifer? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's always good to have authors that are talking about something that's very current. Um, and this one is definitely something that's very current and that people, you know, need to know more about. And I'm going to let them know a little bit about you, Jennifer. Um, <clears throat> she believes that leadership is one of the most vital renewable resources in the world. Uh, in this topsy-turvy time when uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity are raging, we need a new form of leadership for a new era. Um, while it might be na- natural to experience these swirling currents of change as threatening force to be survived in an inconvenience, uh, to be managed, those who lead in a, us into the future see complexity as the natural state of the world. And that's what Jennifer does a good job of speaking about. Um, she designs and teaches leadership program, coaches senior teams, support news ways of thinking. Um, you, as I said, we're going to be speaking about this book. And we also have another book that I'm going to mention as well. Jennifer supports executives one-on-one in leadership coaching. Over the decades, she's developed growth edge coaching approach, supports clients to find their current growing edge and make choices about how they want to develop. Um, well, you have a wonderful background. And for those of you who want to learn more, just go to cultivatingleadership.com. That's cultivatingleadership.com. We'll put a link to that in uh, the blog as well. So Jennifer, let's just kind of start this off, you know, at the website. So for my listeners, please go to the website because there's a huge team of people that are consulting and coaching uh, leaders. And you, you state that you help organizations thrive in complexity and your kind of bag has been to study complexity, um, you know, and how it works. 
Um, this obviously comes down to the individual within the culture of the organization, knowing what to do um, to make things better during complex times for themselves and for the culture of the organization. You state in the introduction of the book that complexity tends to trigger us and makes us anxious and afraid. And that's the, for me right now, kind of the key in the world is this anxiousness, um, the, the prevalence of fear, um, that normally doesn't lead us any place good. <clears throat> you know, let's face it. Uh, given the complex times we live in now, how do you help individuals better cope and respond? to challenging times like we're living in, especially leaders inside of companies. Yeah. I mean, this, this point you're making that fear doesn't tend to lead us to very helpful places is super important, right? And, and very often people don't even notice that they're afraid, right? They notice that they have to do things. They notice that they're kind of maybe stressed, that they're, uh, talking faster or moving faster than they usually do or whatever. Uh, but this kind of low level fear that comes from our nervous system, they don't so much pay attention to right. as fear or even discomfort. They just feel it as busyness. And so the first thing we help leaders do is notice because you can't really change anything until you begin to notice where you are. And so the the first way we help leaders is to get a handle on what's going on for me right now, what's going on for us right now, what is the challenge that we're facing, what is our habit about handling a challenge like that, and what new tools might we have that might be more useful given, given where we are. Yeah, and the tools, and um, we're going to get into them, the gems that you have created in this book. But, you know, it's um, the makeup of our bodies, you know, the way the brain works, the amygdala, the, the, the way that we're connected and wires wired. For centuries and centuries, you know, I've talked to social biologists about this. It's almost like, we wait to the last minute before we actually do something about something, right? Uh, it has to get to this point um, of almost catastrophic. And sometimes it's as individuals and companies, right? Um, companies realize that, okay, we're losing money every month in and a month out, month in and month out, but we haven't cut the team. So just like what, you know, um, the Facebook guy did, pardon me, I can't remember his name. <laughs> Right now, but you know, he lays off 11,000 people all of a sudden, like boom, here's 11,000 people go. Um, we, we see moves like that happening, you know, inside corporations. And you're wondering, well, you knew this was revving up to this, you know, it's like, so all of a sudden you're going to make a move like that. And those decisions. So that's really about making better decisions. Um, we don't have a tendency to have that. DNA kind of wired into us or, or do we? No, we are in the last couple of books I've written, I've been exploring the ways our, our neurobiology handles complexity. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I've found in, in studies from, you know, just across, um, 
neurology, neuroscience, psychology, behavioral economics, and and all these different fields, what you see is that the the human system was designed, has evolved to basically ignore or fight against or be completely stressed out by complexity. Right. And you can see that for most of our history, that was probably a good idea. Does that tendency help us make complex business decisions? It does not. <laughs> it is not. Right. It is not a, a gift to us. It's, it is incredible if what we need to do is run or fight our way out of a challenge. But when we are deciding whether to lay off people, when we are deciding what new strategy to take on, when we are trying to come to terms with something we've done that has been problematic in some powerful way, when we're wrestling with social issues, you know, all these things actually activate our our anxious nervous system, our sympathetic nervous system our activation system and um and that doesn't do a great job at making the kinds of complex decisions you're talking about yeah your your you know your research the research you've um read and studied i'd say every time it follows that course in other words it's the, it's that's the outcome is that it's not that great and i and i was just recently on with dan bittner the guy that wrote the blue zones and he has a new book out um, the American Blue Zones cookbook. And, you know, we got to talking about applications to change behavior. And I said, I, he said, I don't want this to be a buzzkill, but the research shows that no matter what app you put on your phone to meditate with or to, or to change your diet or to whatever, um, we see a precipitous decline at seven months, meaning around seven months is the time when people drop off these things, yet their phones are loaded with them. And I said, well, that's real interesting, Dan. And he said, yeah, but the flip side is, if you change the environment in which people, so like you, you went to France, look at it, things are a little slower, people have bike paths, they're eating healthier, they're eating organic, you know, he said, so we lower the BMI in a city by 3% by coming in and changing the environment, not by filling their phones with apps of that you've got to do this, or you're going to get 10,000 steps, or you're going to do whatever you're going to do. And I thought the approach was, you know, it was kind of an eye opener for me, you know, to say, we've got to do this at a much higher level, at a governmental level, we've got to change these things in the world. Before we as human beings are going to kind of follow the path. You know what I mean? Um, any comment on that? Because that's, you know, inside of a corporation, it's almost the same thing. It's its own biosphere, right? It's its own culture. And I guess if you're not changing the environment, maybe a lot of times what you're doing is you're wasting a lot of time. Yeah, I think this this question about at what level does change happen? Mm -hmm. Uh, people have these different theories, you know, like people have a theory that changes all individual or changes about willpower or changes about intelligence or changes about motivation or changes about, you know, like there are all these theories. If we can just provide willpower, intelligence, motivation, apps, whatever it might be, 
people will change. Um, but as you say, change is a complex and interactive process that has something to do with culture, that has something to do with environment, that has something to do with identity, that has something to do with psychology, that has something to do with biology. And I just don't think we're ever going to find the one right. size fits all yeah. way to make change happen. Uh, so. Well, in his case, it was demographers that studied regions to find out where people lived over a hundred years old. Right. Everybody knows that. But the point of it is, is that they found commonalities, obviously, in this community, strong sense of community, um, a different diet. 90% plant-based, mostly organic, you know. So if you follow the list down, you sit there and you're going, wow, that's that's really supporting me because that's all I can get, right? So that's, that's what I'm going to eat. I'm going to walk. I'm going to do these things. You know, you've authored so many books, such as Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps, Changing on the Job, Simple Habits for Complex Times. And most of the books are about thriving in complexity or making life simpler. Now, you've chosen to have a simpler life by moving where you've moved. You're living in the southern part of France, um, a much simpler lifestyle. Not everybody has. Well, I wouldn't say they don't have the choice. They haven't made that choice. Um, what is it about the way complex systems work that is so counterintuitive for us? to comprehend because your study, your body of work as an individual, and I don't know how you got here, but you're really interested in how we can figure out how to work with complexity, you know, and how it can be our friend versus being our foe. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. This is exactly right. So when you Talk about context. I have moved to the southwest of France, but I bought a house with 10 friends and we live in community here. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure that I simplified that much, to be honest. <laughs> when, oh, well. <laughs> when, when you have to make a, you know, a decision by committee for everything, it's not, not, not necessarily a simpler life, but it is a very interesting and, um, and, you know, a life filled with growth and laughter. Yeah. And I, I think that the, I, I think the thing is our body automatically tells us that complexity is kind of wrong or bad or scary. Mm -hmm. uh, then our organizations reinforce this by saying your job as a manager is to control things and to predict the future and to deliver on the future that you predicted. Right. And it reinforces that trend that complexity is our enemy in some way. But actually complexity is just the, it's a, it's a life force. You know, it, it is a piece of what it is to be alive and mortal and interdependent with the land and the other humans and the atmosphere. You know, this is just is. And I think we can think about it as, uh, you know, a force that's threatening and dangerous, and we need to kind of segment it as much as we can, get it out of here as much as we can. But I think this is always 
a losing battle, particularly as the complexity of the world just advances and advances and advances. I think if we looked at complexity as a force that we could understand, harness, play with, surrender to, um, make use of, I think we would have a really different relationship to what it means to be human and alive right now. Um, And it, I think it would be a more helpful relationship. And I think we would potentially be able to solve bigger problems. Agreed. Um, And I'm not saying that everybody is running from complexity, but what I would say is they need, and we're going to talk about it, better ways to be in relationship with it. Um, You know, there's a, I think, this is my humble opinion, uh, opinion, you're kind of going through life and you don't feel like you want to have more complexity. Just like you said, you moved in with all these people and it hasn't been really more simple, but you've had this wonderful experience of community, right? So there's some trade-offs there. Maybe it did get a little more complex, but the whole support structure, and that's something that I think your research probably ferrets out that, you know, if I do get in a complex situation and I have a lot of community of support, people around me, the other managers, the, you know, the upper line people to help me through it, it's so much easier. And you speak uh, in the book about the difference between complicated versus complex challenges. And I, I thought this was really interesting part. Can you speak with the listeners about the differences and why complex challenges are much more difficult to solve or predict? Yeah. So this distinction comes from a variety of places. The teacher I study most this distinction is Dave Snowden, who's a complexity theorist. And uh and the this is the distinction between two kinds of systems, systems that are predictable that run the same way every time, and systems that are not predictable in complicated challenges, you have something that's tricky, it's hard. And yet, with the right expertise, the right experience, the right education, you can figure it out. A a complicated challenge is, you know, something as daily as having a car that works to get you to where you need to be, something as innovative as creating a rocket to the moon or SpaceX or whatever it might be. Um, but all of these are kind of engineering problems. You can break the problem apart into segments. You can hand the segments to different experts, and then you can kind of reassemble something that ought to work well in this case and across contexts. Complexity is not like that. Complexity is uh, a kind of entangled mess where things actually change what's going on right now in such a way that you can't imagine what's going to happen next. You know, traffic is a complex system. It seems like everybody should be driving kind of at the same speed and in the same place, but suddenly traffic snarls in reasons that you can't really understand, you can't really predict, you can't necessarily know that it's going to snarl that way again. We are finding that who gets COVID is a complex challenge. How COVID operates in our bodies 
This is a complex challenge. There are patterns. Some people get very sick. Many people don't get sick. If you're immunized, it has one feature or another, but it's not predictable. You can't know if you're one of the ones that's going to be in this category or that one or that one. And that's because there are so many features at play. Where did you get it? How were you exposed? What time of day was it? How run down was your body? How strong is your immune system? When were you last exposed? All these questions and these questions kind of interact with each other to mean that while you can study patterns across a population, you can never predict any one particular thing. And as you say, solving a complicated challenge, we know how to do that. Humans have gotten incredibly great at doing this getting the right kind of studies, the right kind of understanding, the right humans to or computers to parse apart the information and then put it back together into some excellent solution. Complexity will always be unpredictable, but it's definitionally unpredictable. And we will always need another path to addressing complex challenges than we have to addressing complicated ones. Yeah, just the whole complexity theory. And, you know, you talked about Snowden mentioned the book. You actually mentioned his book in your book. Um, you know, I have friends that actually do this. This is, you know, this is their fun is study complexity. You know, um, a gentleman who wrote a book called Open Boundaries, um, where when we're in these systems, like working at a big corporation, um, which has all these moving parts and pieces. And no matter where you are in that, in, in that big matrix, right? Um, it, it does get daunting. And so you state that uncertainty wrecks havoc on our systems, financial, political, social. But the first stress system, um, that a leader must deal with is their own nervous system. Um, and, I would agree because, you know, being able to keep our composure during challenging times and stress, I happen to be, you know, an advocate of the Eastern theory and meditation, and most of my listeners are, and they understand, and mindfulness practices and, you know, all kinds of things. What does complexity uh, do to us inside and how can we better understand how to cope with it better? Um, I think that's the key. You know, I'm, I'm headed back to go meet Richie Davidson, the guy who did all the studies with the monks um, on and studying how their brains work under meditation um, at the university of Wisconsin. And um, I feel so honored to actually go do that. But the reality is that's not everybody. You know, as a matter of fact, it's a very small segment that's able to actually take this thing called meditation and actually make it a regular practice that makes them better able to cope with life. Yeah. So this question about how is it? We can engage, notice and engage with our own nervous systems. This is what meditation is all about, right? How do I engage with my own nervous system, my whole thought system as a system that I can kind of look into? I'm, I am it and I can also see it. 
And this is one of the keys to being able to handle complexity gracefully, I think, and to be able to use it as a, as a force to play with is that we have to see what it does to us. And then we have to have a relationship to that. That means we can say, Oh, I'd like to change this. I'd like to, I'd like to change something about this in this moment. I wonder what I could do to make that possible. Um, Otherwise we are very often traveling through our lives as passengers on the river of complexity and not actually steering very much. That's so true. And, you know, I I think what happens is if people can learn mindfulness meditation practices, it makes it so much easier. Um, You state that one of the core paradoxes of complex systems is that a lot of effort can have little or no impact. Um, I think that's worth repeating because most people think a lot of effort will have huge impact. And that's a conundrum for most people because they're used to efforting a lot to, to get something done with their, whatever the goal is, right? Speak with the listeners, if you would, about slow, going slow to go fast, a concept that April Rennie talks about too in her book called Flux, who was just on here, and some of the benefits of this strategy. This is one of the, I mean, it's one of the incredibly frustrating things about complexity, right? As anybody who's tried to, you know, do a culture change initiative or launch a new product that you were sure was going to be spectacular, that's not actually spectacular in the marketplace or whatever it is, whenever we want or build trust in a team and has put a lot of effort into building trust in a team, all of these are emergent phenomena of complex systems, right? Um, And the bad news is it's not a put one unit in, get one unit out kind of an exchange in complexity. The good news is it's not a put one unit in, get one unit out kind of exchange in complexity, right? So this thing gives as it takes away. Um, So the, the question is, I think for certainly for me is what are the many small experiments we can try that might have this incredibly outsized impact while, you know, not, not costing that much instead of doing, as you say, efforting uh, to try and force a system to do a particular thing, um, which in a complex system often has a kind of perverse fighting back effect. And so this, this oh, idea what about of going, the, pardon me for interrupting you, but what about, you know, you, you just mentioned 15 minutes earlier that, you know, your managers are expecting you to get something done. So you have this pressure, let's just call it, and it's, it's real pressure. Um, they're, the managers are, or the upper management is not saying, well, you can go ahead and wallow with this problem, um, which if you did wallow, you'd probably make a better decision. Okay. They're saying, we want you to get something done. Right. In other words, we need something to happen. A lot of times they don't even know what it is that they think should happen. Um, but they have this expectation of you. 
right? It's like the expectation of the outcome. You talked about it in the book. That is one of the challenges at any level in an organization, be it that it's there. Um, you know, if you look at the Buddhist philosophy, it's like, don't get attached to the expectation of the outcome, right? But that seems to be a hard one for corporations to kind of like uptake, put it into their pipe and smoke it and say, this is the way we're running today. So what advice would you have for the people that are in the ranks and files that are listening to this, or they're at the upper management level, and they're the ones directing the people in the rank and file to do things that maybe actually wallowing would be a better option. Well, I think anybody who's, you know, who, who faces a lot of responsibilities and a really busy job, and then they go away on vacation and they actually don't look at their email and then they come back to whatever, 20 million emails, right? right? And as they f- go through them, they see problems arise and fall, arise and fall. They see problems come and and somehow fade away, like over the course of their kind of study of their inbox. I've had so many leaders come to me and say, you know, Jennifer... When I am away, my people solve things that when I'm there, I think they absolutely need me for. And so this is a piece of the of the challenge is our action urge to do something often injects us in a way that expands our energy without actually adding very much value. And so this idea of going to slow to go fast first has us pause and see what's actually going on. How much am I motivated by my own anxiety? How much am I motivated by my reflexes? And how much am I actually able to put my hands around this challenge? And then, you know, the the approach we tend to teach is about experimentation. How can you make small experiments and learn? And we have uh, leaders and organizations all over the world who are trying to take this more experimental approach where they uh, try multiple small things and then learn from what the system does with those multiple small things. We had we had one organization we worked with that were was trying to have a a culture change where. Um, the organization was quite siloed, as many organizations are, and they were trying to break down some of those silos. Excuse me. And in order to do it, they were having programs and they were having, you know, all kinds of initiatives, all kinds of uh, all kinds of stuff was going on. There was quite a lot of a, a lot of push in the organization. And they were now learning about experiments and complexity. And so they were playing around with this fundamental question, what kind of stories are people telling right now? And what kinds of stories would I like them to tell more of? And what kinds of stories would I like them to tell fewer of? And they were hearing that a lot of the stories people were telling were about how those people over there were idiots, annoying, money-grubbing, self-centered, what, 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 you know, whatever negative stories we imagine about people who are in a different silo from us. And they had these stories mutually going back and forth. And one of the experiments was um, 
okay, I'll give you a hundred bucks to go out to dinner with one of those folks. I'll pay for dinner for both of you or lunch. You choose the meal. I'll pay for it. You go out to dinner. I don't care what happens. Just try that. And they invested like whatever, four months and three grand in this experiment. And most people didn't take them up on it. Most people are like, I don't want to have dinner with him, even if you're going to give me a nice meal. But some people did. And those some people started to like each other better, started to collaborate more, started to talk about work more, started to tell each other, oh, no, you're I think you've got that wrong about those folks. I've, I've been out to dinner with a bunch of those folks. I spend time with them. I, you know, I solve problems with them. And suddenly this, the culture started to shift in this like $3,000 experiment of take some, somebody you don't like out to dinner. And did it have to work that way? No, they were trying other things too at the same time. Um, And those other things probably had some kind of an impact too. The question is, can you find these small, relatively low investment attempts and then learn from them and see how the system changes? Yeah, it's almost like a, I don't want to say you you bring a light where there's darkness in there, right? Um, Because of the way somebody may think about someone, but then you start, the light starts to shine brighter and brighter and brighter. Um, you know, the, the darkness does serve the light. So what is, is interesting, and I remember this comment and it kind of goes along with it. The people of diversity that you're asking them to interact with that they, the other people are saying, well, I don't like them or whatever because they're different. Um, I remember Stephen Kotler, he's been on the show about six times talking about hacking flow. And the creativity inside of organizations and creativity and innovation in general. And he said, well, if you want to be innovative, his comment to me was, why don't you read something different? And I was like, well, he says, well, you know, I read Architectural Digest. People wouldn't think that I would read Architectural Digest. He said, but the reality is the fact that you've stimulated your brain by pushing it to read something that you you know, you're normally commonly understand. It's almost like going to dinner with someone different, right? You're saying, well, this person's a magician, um, um, musician. Uh, I don't like musicians. I'm like, whatever, you know, but I'm going to go anyway, because I'm going to go with an open mind and learn. It's the same thing with reading Architectural Digest. He said, what happens is it breaks the code and your creativity um, emerges, your innovation emerges, you become more engaged. And I thought it's a great way for people to do that. So just like you said, you know, go spend a hundred bucks and, you know, go to dinner with somebody that you don't maybe care about that's in some other silo inside the company or read something different or force yourself to do something different because it is going to have you help you solve problems differently as well. And, you know, you introduced something called, these are the gems, uh, genius engagement moves, which allows us to become aware of what is happening in our nervous system and begin to make intentional shifts. Can you speak with the listeners about the gems? There's a lot of them in the book. So I will, I will say we'll apply some of them, maybe the most important ones here that you would like to talk about. You have many. So we'll just pick that the most successfully used. Um, with an impact on our nervous system and dealing with complexity. 
So one of them, I would think humbly, is just before you take an action, take a breath. You know, just take a big, deep breath in um, and wait. Don't just react, you know, because that's, we have a tendency to do that. We want to find a solution quickly. So we're just, boom, we're going to say something, put our foot in our mouth. Any others that you want to give us that we, that the listeners could apply and apply immediately. Let's say they're working in a corporation today and they're going, wow, I could really use what you guys are talking about. Yeah. So one of my favorite uh, is to, to see whether there can be more laughter in your life. So one of the complexity geniuses, one of the things that makes us great at complexity is laughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great for our body. It's great for our connections. It's actually a socially generated phenomenon that comes from and enables trust and bonding. And, uh, and lots of people have this idea, oh, yeah, there's no laughing at my work because I am in a serious business. Or there's no laughing at my work because my colleagues are not funny. And it turns out that laughter is really rarely about what's funny. It's about the sense we make of it. And it's about what we're trying to signal to one another. And so the a couple of gems in that space that have really changed my life are, um, first of all, Offer your laughter as a gift to others, right? So think about your laughter as a kind of social glue that makes things cohere, that makes groups feel more together uh, and, and see whether you can feel more free and um, open with this gift of laughter. So this is one of them. And then but the even other if one you is, can't laugh. How could, even if you can't laugh, how about smiling? Yeah, for <laughs> just, sure. Just for smiling. Sure, it changes mean, our neurology. Yeah, right? there's a guy that just did a TED talk about smiling. And it's like, it, it makes so much difference. I mean, if you're not going to laugh, at least smile. <laughs> I mean, you this know? is it. You are actually changing not only what happens in <clears throat> your blood when you smile or when you laugh, but also what's happening in the bodies of the people you're with. I mean, that's extraordinary to be able to have that effect on people. Right. That's amazing. And the the other one and the other gem in this laughter space is how can you find ways to take what was heavy and hard and laugh at it? We call it an irony practice. And I used to, I, I, have, I have several coaching clients who use this irony practice and we sp- Spend the first few minutes of our session together just going over things that in the moment felt awful, heavy, serious, difficult. The board meeting, you know, this terrible presentation where I screwed up the slides, you know, all these difficult, hard, grueling things. And then we, we laugh at it. You know, mm-hmm. we say, oh, can you believe that this happened to me? And we find that actually laughter emerges from those times. Like laughter is the reconceptualization of difficulty into something that's hilarious. And often the hardest things become hilarious. Not all the hardest things, 
But many of the hardest things become hilarious if we just treat them that way. And then as we face other hardship, it's easier for us to face into it without this kind of heavy, serious, somber thing. Complexity responds very well to play, to lightness, to exploration, to co-creation. Laughter is like that. Those are great bits of advice because I think, you know, people, they talk many times in a corporation about being more playful. You'll be more creative, you know, yet for some reason, you, you know, the words oftentimes bounce off the wall because the culture has been so ingrained that when somebody new comes in and says, you can do this now, people are hesitant to do that because before they were reprimanded for it right and and it's now you have to break through oh man they're allowing me to have more autonomy they're allowing me to be more playful they're allowing me to do you know i i i remember reading uh yvonne chenard's book the guy who um does patagonia you know it was always for him about having a culture where people had this autonomy he would tell the guys who were in working in Santa Barbara, we'll go surfing in the middle of the day, do whatever you're going to do, and then come back and go back to work. It's not like I have you chained to this desk for eight hours. They don't want you chained to this desk for eight hours. Um, But many of these organizations, they've been ensconced with this kind of um, thing. It's like, you're going to be here eight to five, you're going to grind it out, and that's the way it is. And it's hard for them to make the move. But some of the things in your book, and I'm going to point that out, these gems will certainly make dealing with it a lot easier. So please get the book. Now, your gems help in creating conditions for new solutions to emerge. Um, you mentioned that one of the beautiful things about complexity is that we cannot make things happen. We just talked about that a minute ago. What advice would you give a leader about learning to let go of their biases and beliefs and become a receptacle for new creative solutions. And please speak about the idea, if you would, of non-attachment to the outcome. Um, I think a big part of this is the attachment to the outcome. And if you're really going to let go of biases and beliefs and really let go, which I don't know how many people know how to do that. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't think, I I think it's a practice, you know, like all of these things that we're talking about, I'm not sure we arrive, but this, this question of, can we release our preconception? Our preconception comes automatically from an assumption, whether we notice it or not, that the future is going to be kind of like the past. If we even have a preconception, it comes from our past, right? Right. It comes from what we know. It comes from how it's been before. That's what preconception is. We are are noticing it before it happens. And I, I mean, you just imagine all the things that are eliminated if the thing that we want is something that's happened before. This is a this is a world so quickly changing. We can we we can't count on what's happened before, and maybe we don't want to. Maybe we want a new thing to happen. Maybe this is the point. And so, I think when we begin to practice 
something like non-attachment to outcomes, right? Where we say, I want to go that away. I want to help people in these ways. I want to create a business in this direction. I want to help make knowledge more available or help make um, the world more sustainable in its use of energy or whatever your goal might be. Right. If you leave, if you leave, I want to go that way without thinking in exactly this way or at exactly this speed or with exactly these milestones, then you allow space for emergence and for happenstance and serendipity to arrive. And you allow space for the creativity of others to influence the direction that you actually take. And so I think it's this, um, you also give more room for presence. You do. You, you know, get to learn from what's going on right now. Exactly. You know, you, I had this saying told to me a long time ago, you lived in you live in the dead past or imagined future, but you have a hard time staying in the now. Um, call it Eckhart Tolle, whoever you want to call it. But the reality is, is that that presence that we need to get to is how we really solve these complex issues. We don't solve them by going, well, yesterday was a real day. I'm going to drag it all in and tomorrow's got this and I'm worried about what's going to go in there. You really solve these by staying in the now. That may sound trite to a lot of people, but please, um, from my humble opinion and experience in the 980 authors I've interviewed, it does have a huge impact on if you can stay there. Um, you know, one of your gems is to lead into humility rather than hubris. You state that we should think of the smallest moves that might shift the conditions that are creating our version of our reality. There's underline our version of our reality. What's the best way to move the ego out of the way? Because a lot of this is attached to ego. I have a job. I'm vice president of this division. Um, And remind us that solutions are co-created with the universe when we are open and receptive to listening. Again, first, we have to notice that the ego is in the way. Right, which is why this work about self-awareness and what's going on for me is so important because otherwise it doesn't feel like ego. It feels like something else, right? Because the ego is always back there, like pulling the strings. Right. And so noticing that our ego might be getting in the way and asking ourselves a question like, in this moment, how is it getting in the way? As opposed to like, am I one of those people whose ego gets in the way? Yes, you are. Yes, Mm -hmm. you are a human person. Your heart beats, Mm -hmm. right? Your ego gets in the way sometimes. And so um, paying attention, noticing, and then finding ways, you know, like laughing at yourself and the things that looked so bad earlier in the week is an ego bashing way, right? It, It frees us. Listening well to others is... Another way that we free ourselves up to co-create and to be with one another. And this other thing that you're mentioning is getting out of the heavy stories of what has been, what should have been, what should be next, anything with a should in it, and noticing what is 
What, mm-hmm. what is now? What is What's, now? What are the yeah. patterns right yeah. now? Yeah. And how can you start to mess around with the patterns of right now and amplify the ones you like and dampen down the ones you don't like? What everything we have is right now. Yeah, it is. And it's a hard thing for people to grasp because we have time. So when you wear a watch and you look at it, it's on your clock, you know, it's you're reminded everywhere you go of time. Uh, it it has a difficult time staying present. And I will say that the biggest thing that I've seen in the modern world has just been the distraction of the cell phone. Um, there isn't any one device, in my humble opinion, that's distracted people more than the cell phone. You know, we've had, we've had people fall off cliffs, taking pictures of themselves. And, you know, <clears throat> I'm not certain that would have happened if you had a brownie camera or not. Right. So, um, you know, you recounted Jennifer, uh, reading Robert Keegan's book, it, it the life changing book, you called it in your, um, book in over our heads. Um, your epiphany was that our emotions were constructed by us and that we can control and construct emotions. Um, I couldn't agree more, but on the other hand, I think there might be people listening and going, yeah, okay, I get it, but I don't know how. Speak with our listeners about the importance of this book for you. And how knowing we have control of our emotions can be one of the biggest game changers in our lives. Yeah, I I think I've come to believe that we have control over the stories we tell ourselves about our emotions. Um so this this question of I feel angry. I feel angry at you. I feel angry at you for these reasons, right? Um, This is almost entirely story. A little bit of sensation. I have a feeling it happens in my body. There is, you know, a a different cocktail of chemicals coursing through my veins, a different cocktail of neurohormones coursing through my veins. Relatively briefly, Right. Like that, that actual physical sensation is quite short. Everything that makes an emotion last is the amplification of our stories and understanding that our emotions are really about the stories I'm telling myself. I've I've been writing this week a, a blog about the phrase, the story I make up about this is. Because actually, I'm not sure there's a more helpful phrase to put at the beginning of a sentence than that when you're dealing with a, with an emotion. Like, I'm super hurt that my friends right. did this thing without me, right? I get it. And then when you talk to them about it, the story I make up about this is you didn't care about my feelings, or the story I make up about this is that you didn't consider me, or the story I make up, whatever the story is. Loses about ninety eight percent of its value to to rile me up if I can put the phrase the story I make up about it is, and this I think helps us understand our emotions are the result of our stories as opposed to our emotions are the result of the actions of others. Our emotions are the result of the stories we tell ourselves about the actions of others, and understanding that little 
hook and being able to tell myself, oh, I'm making up a story about this and this is why I'm enraged, making up a story about this. This is why I'm hurt. Liberating. Totally. In a way, almost nothing in my life has been liberating. More liberating than that. Yes. You know, um, I, I got a degree in spiritual psychology and then I came to the realization about MSU, making stuff up. You know, we used to have a saying in, in the university, you don't have to believe everything you think. And the reality was, is that there was a bumper sticker actually made. I think I still have it here. Um, because we make these stories up and then we believe the stories we made up and then they become a belief about it. So then it's a belief against that other person or whatever. And it can be so insidious because there's no foundation for it. It's something that I made up. It's maybe a comment we took wrong from somebody and took it to heart. And it really, they really didn't, you know, mean it that way. Right. Cause we never checked back in. Um, so I think that's one thing. And I think it's so valuable what you said to understand that the stories you make up can have such a huge impact on your life. I, I remember Byron Katie being on this show, wonderful woman. And she used to put people up in front of the audience and she'd ask them two questions. And I don't know if you remember her or not. Do you remember Byron Katie? The name is super familiar. So very famous. She got very famous on asking these questions. The first question was, is it true? Oh, yes. Uh And then she says, is it really true? Right? Because people would make up this story about their mate. Oh, he's so bad, or she's so bad, or they're horrible, or whatever. And she'd sit in the audience chair to chair like this. And she'd just say, well, is it true? And they'd go, well, maybe, well, maybe it's, maybe it's not really. Now when I start to think about it, maybe it's not so bad as I made it up to be. And then she'd say, it's really, is it really, really true? You know, and then go, well, no, not at all. You know, it was, it's just this really interesting way to say, I ask people, you know, you might want to ask yourself, is it really true? Because the reality is most of the stories you make up are made up. They're not true right? There's something you made up. So in conclusion here, um, your book's filled with great stories, research, practical experience for dealing with complexity. What are the few ideas that you would like to leave listeners with that they could navigate navigate complexities in their life with? If you were leave them two or three things that you think from a combination of our 48 minutes here on, on the uh, Zoom call that you could actually make that happen. Oh, two things. Okay, the first thing, the the research I did for this book helped convince me that we have a lot more agency to affect the conditions of our lives than we think we do, and that making moves to uh, live more peacefully in complexity is actually delightful and is filled with things that don't feel like difficulties, but feel like joy. And I think the second thing I want to say is um, one of the most joyful is how we connect with other people and how we could be more intentional and thoughtful 
grapple about solving for that love and connection with other folks and how much that makes complexity bearable. I'd say that second one is really important um, because we're at a a point in our history um, where if you look at the divisiveness that's occurred worldwide because of the stories we made up about Mm -hmm. somebody else, that we've, this is self-imposed divisiveness. Um, It doesn't need to be that way. I'm not saying we need a hate Ashbury love fest and let's all go smoke pot and, you know, have a great time. What I'm saying is if just little by little you'd make, if anybody out there listening would make one small step toward making a connection with another person, um, I think it would make a huge difference in the world to try and bridge whatever it is you're attempting to bridge. Just like you said, go take them to lunch, go do whatever. Um I mean, I know my nonprofit, Compassionate Communications Foundation, I go out and give $100 gift cards to people on the streets that are uh, homeless. And I make my attempt to bridge that. I have to do that with every individual that I hand a card to. I don't know who they are. Many of them have mental illness. I've got to overcome. But I've also got to learn how to work with that subset of the population to help find more love and compassion for them, um, no matter who they are. And I think that's true inside of a business. If you would think about that individual out there and that they have emotions and feelings and concerns and upsets, and all they want to do is be heard. You said listen to, but I say heard. Um, Same thing. And with that, I want to let all our listeners go to um, Jennifer's website and we'll put a link to that. And that website is cultivatingleadership.com. We're also going to have her back on the shelf next month for this book, (laughs) Simple Habits for Complex Times. So Jennifer, thank you so much. Have a wonderful holiday season. Enjoy France and the countryside and drinking wine and being with all of you her great friends there in the community that you built. Sounds like a wonderful life. Um, Namaste to you uh, and to everything that you're doing to help the world heal uh, and heal these companies and the people inside of them and bring more light. Thank you so much. Thank you for this great conversation. I hope you have a wonderful day. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.